Previously on Smart Mobility Today, our stories covered a variety of power sources, ranging from wind to hydrogen, plus some interesting ways robots are being used to explore distant moons or our brains. This week's stories focus on AI, robot labor, EV charging, battery production, and imaging in deep space and deep in the oceans. Plus, Nathan Keelan talks with Hitachi Estimo's Jim Castellano about electrification, where we have been and where we are going. You've got something to say, and we can help you say it. Detroit Media Productions is here for your audio, photography, and video needs. DetroitMediaProductions.com Hi, this is Cindy Polakowski. Rural communities often have limited access to emergency medical care, and issues like long wait times for ambulances can be life-threatening in cases like cardiac arrest where every minute counts. Researchers at USC are working on ways to use AI to make faster decisions about how to deploy emergency services and equipment. The goal is to help emergency responders make informed and efficient decisions in settings where data is limited. They hope to see an overall improvement to the design of emergency response systems in underserved areas, potentially saving lives. Determining where to place drone depots for optimal results is a big part of the equation, with the possibility of delivering a defibrillator to the site before emergency responders can arrive, improving the outcome for patient survival. A company in Vancouver called Sanctuary AI says its new robot is ready for real work. It is a commercially available general-purpose robot named Phoenix. At 5 feet 7 inches tall, Phoenix, powered by an AI system called Carbon, has dexterous hands that allow it to perform tasks ranging from stocking shelves to unloading trucks and working at a register. The announcement follows a pilot program where a sanctuary AI robot worked at a Canadian tire store, successfully completing more than 110 different tasks, or 40% of all the tasks that need to be performed in the job. The company says general-purpose robots will fill gaps in the labor market. They describe it as a, quote, labor-as-a-service model, where robots are integrated in a work setting and companies using the robots pay an hourly rate for the work the robots complete without any upfront cost. A reporter in Scotland recently rode on the world's first autonomous public bus and wrote about the experience. The bus, driven by computers, sensors, and cameras, is a big technological achievement. And for the reporter, boring. And in this case, boring is great because riding a bus is supposed to lack drama. Five autonomous buses today carry passengers just outside of Edinburgh, navigating public roads with their traffic, traffic signals, cyclists, and pedestrians. These vehicles are delivering the first autonomous bus service on public roads anywhere in the world. A group called Calforth runs the program and says the primary benefits of its autonomous fleet are safety and cost saving. Since human error is the cause of most traffic accidents, maybe it is good to be driven by computers who don't get tired or distracted or eat lunch while driving. A 20% reduction in fuel consumption is achieved through efficiency. The buses communicate with traffic signals and are alerted if there is an upcoming red light, allowing the AV to adjust its driving speed, saving energy and money. Future plans see a shift from the fleet's current diesel fuel to less polluting electric drive buses. The Powering Electric Vehicles campaign features industry leaders and experts. Running through the spring of 2023, the program will feature informational and educational content 
as well as a May networking event. More at globalautomobility.com. Honda announced two new hydrogen projects involving both fuel cells and hydrogen combustion engines. Their plan is to develop a fuel cell heavy-duty truck in partnership with Isuzu and demonstrate a prototype by next year, with a market launch set for 2027. This announcement adds Honda to the list of car makers developing fuel cell semis. As we reported last week, Toyota and Hyundai just announced plans to broaden fuel cell semi-plans for the U.S. And last year, General Motors announced plans to build 2,000 fuel cell semis in concert with truck maker Navistar. In addition to the fuel cell news, Honda says it is also working on hydrogen combustion. While fuel cells use gaseous hydrogen to generate electricity, hydrogen combustion engines simply burn it instead of liquid gasoline or diesel. The focus of this energy option is the small mobility sector. Honda, along with Suzuki, Kawasaki, and Yamaha, are also exploring together battery swapping for motorcycles. These companies represent a large portion of the global motorcycle market. Volvo is investing in a bi-directional EV charging startup called Decibel. The company's R16 home energy station is a renewable energy system featuring solar power, bidirectional charging capabilities for backup power, and smart home capabilities. Volvo, the first premium auto brand committed to a full hybrid or EV lineup for all of its models, is focused on selling 1 million electrified cars by 2025. The company saw sales of its fully electric vehicles increase 157% in the first three months of 2023, reaching 18% of their total car sales. In the UK, Finance Minister Jeremy Hunt said this week the batteries needed to power EVs will be produced at home. Car makers are warning that insufficient production in the UK could risk auto industry investment in Britain, as a post-Brexit agreement with the European Union encourages the onshore sourcing of EV batteries. According to Stellantis, the world's third largest car maker by sales, the company could face large tariffs due to a requirement that 45% of the value of an EV sold in the European Union must come from Britain or EU from 2024 to avoid tariffs. A battery pack can account for up to half a new EV's cost. Stellantis, as well as Ford Motor Company, have called for a delay in the introduction of the new tariffs. At the upcoming Powering Electric Vehicles event just outside of Detroit, I will be introducing a panel of industry experts focused on questions like, What will it take to power an EV? How long will it take? What will it cost? How far can I drive? Will the grid really hold up? And what is the impact on the environment? At the same event, the inaugural Global Automobility Industry Innovation Award will be presented to Dr. David E. Cole, Chair Emeritus of the Center for Automotive Research. You can even attend. Just go to globalautomobility.com. With the largest gig network in the country, Comcast Business has the technology solutions to future-proof your network. This week, Nathan Keelan spoke with Jim Castellano, Vice President of Electrification Engineering at Hitachi Astemo, about the future of electrification in the auto industry. Here is that interview. (laughs) 
right, welcome back, everybody. This is Nathan with Detroit Media Productions for Smart Mobility Today. And today I'm very excited because we have Jim Castellano, the Vice President, Design Engineering, XEV at Hitachi Astomo. And he graduated in 1987 from Western Michigan University with a bachelor's in automotive engineering. He holds two patents for his work on high voltage battery systems, which is definitely something we're going to ask about. And he is focused on growing the future of electrification technologies. So, Jim, very happy to have you here and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Nathan. Excited to be here. Great. So we're going to start off with the hardest question of them all. How did you get interested in electrification technologies? Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, I always love cars. I started in the automotive industry in 1983 as an engineer. And, you know, the one thing as an engineer, you want to be excited about technology and innovation. So in uh, 1999, December 99, I was had the opportunity to get involved in Ford's first hybrid program. And that what drew me to the program was the new technology and electrification and really what it was going to do for the environment and how it would be a positive impact. So that that's how I got started and I've been involved in it ever since. Awesome. So that leads us nicely to this question too. And this is a term where I think a lot of people might not know the difference and I can't think of anyone better to explain it. So could you tell us what is the difference between hybrid and BEV technologies? And why uh, shouldn't they be used interchangeably? That's a great, great question. I get asked that a lot, actually. You know, hybrid vehicles was kind of the beginning of the electrification path. Hybrid vehicles, though, are what we call charge sustaining, whether it's a plug-in or a, a regular HEV vehicle. That means that as you drive the car, the car is charging the battery and it's, it's self-sustaining. You don't have to pull over. You don't have to stop. You don't have to charge the battery. And, you know, obviously in a battery electric, your energy source, there's no gasoline, becomes your electrical charge. So, um, you know, that's the big difference. The one beautiful part of this is as we started to develop the HEV vehicles way back, uh, you know, in the, in the in, for a long time in the 90s and finally came out in production in the early 2000s, is all that technologies, the motors, the inverters, the battery, the battery controllers, all were enabling technologies for what we went to. Batteries have migrated from nickel metal now to lithium types, many different types of lithium batteries. I'm not a chemist, so I can't help you there, but the extended life and safety of these products is just really incredible. And, you know, as you migrate from HEV or gas ice engines to, to the HEVs, to the BEVs, really it's going to become a personal preference, although long-term for the environment, I really think we're, we're heading to a BEV world of, will need to be electrified. But the transition point and enabling technologies that the hybrids provide are just fantastic because it helps that growth path and helps provide uh, economies of scale with some of these commodities as we migrate into the electrification world of BEVs. Yeah, yeah and it definitely seems like that migration is is stronger than ever and is more of a sure thing than ever. You know, I think if 15 years ago, if you're at an auto show, the electric vehicle is definitely interesting and people are into it, but it's kind of like, oh, look at this, you know, thing people are doing on the side. And that's certainly not what it is anymore. It's really taking over. And I think it's pointing, pointing the way towards the future. And on that note, 
as people are embracing electric vehicles and we're seeing their performance and stuff, what are some of the best sources of electricity for vehicles, especially considering that renewable energy sources are such a big part of this? So do you think that sources like hydrogen, solar, and nuclear will be utilized largely for electric vehicles in the future? Or where do you think that source is going to be? Yeah, another great question. Um, long term, my my personal belief, we will have elements of everything. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, you didn't see many solar panels on people's homes or, or roofs, primarily used for eating outdoor pools is what I remembered. And as we have migrated uh, toward the, towards this, as we go for energy sources, it's important that the energy source that makes the electricity is clean and is efficient as well. So, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, solar, nuclear, wind, all that is going to be key uh, in, in, I think, the migration, because it's not going to be okay just to build another fossil fuel burning plant. Not that they've not done a tremendous job improving those, but really to, to do what we need to do for the world and sustainability, I think we're going to see the migration towards, towards the solar, towards the nuclear, towards the wind as, as future applications. They'll all provide energy. And again, what's the path and, and length of that? You know, that's going to be driven by a lot of the, the commercial side of the business and how quickly they can get there. So, yeah, that, that, that's my understanding of it. A lot of moving parts, definitely. But you're no stranger to new ideas, uh, designing new things. Um, this is something I'm excited to ask. I see that you hold two patents for high voltage battery systems. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, no, you know I, I tell everyone, and as I mentor the young engineers, because I'm I'm an old guy now, but the young engineers coming in, I said, probably the most rewarding thing as an engineer you can get is a patent. Not because you get the plaque, but because you know you've done something innovative and, and you've helped something enough to be different. Uh, the patents that I was involved in, and, and they're team patents, so it's, it wasn't me by myself, but it was a, uh, a group of us. As we worked on the first hybrid at Ford, uh, we were using nickel metal hybrid batteries, and we had to provide cooling for the battery to provide the optimal performance. And what we worked hard at was how did we develop a cooling strategy that could cool the battery and yet not impact the driver or any of the passengers? And that was from an NVH standpoint and from a climate control standpoint, because if we're going to pull the AC air out of the, out of the compartment to cool the batteries, that would be sacrificing something that the customer wouldn't want to give up on. So we developed strategies of using um, different cooling paths, outside air, and then how we manage the cooling for the batteries. And, and so the patents I had were all about how we control that, how we control the cooling fans so we didn't add uh, uh, an annoyance of noise into the vehicle. So I was lucky enough to have a, a great group of people to work with, and that's, those are the patents we worked on. Yeah, it definitely ha helps to have a great team and great group of people behind you. And on that note, you've got an engineering degree from Western Michigan University. You told me uh, when we were briefly talking beforehand that you're a proud Bronco. So how has that career program and kind of, I'm this might even be too big of a question to answer because I'm sure everything has changed so much. But I guess in the big ways, how do you see how that field has changed and how that degree has changed since you went to Western? Yeah, thanks. You know, um, Western was a small school. I actually grew up in New York and Long Island and uh, went to uh, junior college, Farmingdale, trying to figure out, you know, what do I want to do? Uh, Long Island was all aerospace. Grumman's a great company to work for. 
Uh, but I really wanted to do cars. And Western had what they called as an automotive engineering. It was mechanical engineering with automotive emphasis. And they just started their aviation engineering. Um, so when, when I went and visited the school, I fell in love with it because it was really uh, an engineering, mechanical engineering based. But instead of doing bridges, we were doing connecting rods and stresses on engines. So it, it was exciting. And we did some advanced engineering work. So that, that background from Western really gave me a, a nice foundation. I was lucky enough to land into to Ford after I graduated, and it, I felt they gave me a very good practical engineering degree. So I, I hit the ground running, and you know, it's a big change in thirty five and a half years when I started. I mean, when I started at Ford, we shared desk phones and 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 computers. There were no laptops, right? You had special codes to get in. So as the world has evolved, you know, really, I, I think computers themselves. And the young and the engineers we get today are so brilliant that you know they're able to do Gen One on the computer, analytically analyzing, testing, and going through those phases. So the products we make uh, in the world today, based on what the engineers do, based on their analytical skills, are are faster to market, they're safer and more efficient than ever before. So it's it's just been an incredible approach. And probably the other thing that that dramatically changed in my career is the globalization. I was lucky enough to have um, a team of engineers working for me at Ford at the end in Germany and in England. And, you know, as you diversify the workforce and you become global, it, it just brings a better product to everyone. And here at Itachi, obviously uh, our headquarters is in Japan, so a very global company as well. And it's just fantastic to be able to share those learnings and bring your be able to bring better products to the consumers and, and the OEMs at a much faster rate with all the technologies now. Yeah, and it seems like the technologies and that rate of change is just kind of speeding up and speeding up. Uh, kind of thinking of that, looking forward in the next five, the next 10 years, what are some major changes or challenges that you that you might be seeing have on your radar and kind of tied to that? How do you think the industry is changing in over that time period? Yeah, another great question. I wish I had a crystal ball that I could tell you the, the true answer, right? I mean, it's it's every time you start down a path, it just seems that, you know, that path is accelerated even more. I, I think the world of batteries is going to dramatically change the path that we all see. Um, you know, when we first started doing electric vehicles, you know, we were really happy at 125 mile range of average average life. You know, they're three, 400 mile ranges now. And and obviously climate, whether it's really hot or really cold, will change some of that range. But um, I, I do think uh, the challenge of the batteries, the chemistry of the batteries will continue to change. And, and as that answer evolves, that will drive then really how quickly, you know, the rest of the industry adopts. But throughout all of that, I, I do think that, you know, you you said earlier, we really hit that inflection point. We're nine, going towards nine percent uh, electrified vehicles now on on full bevs, and that, that's just going to continue to accelerate. So, I I do think within five to ten years, we're going to migrate to an area where it's not going to be only the early adopters, but there's going to be affordable products from the very small cars, B-sized cars, all the way up to the larger cars, and you know we see that with some of the OEMs already with, you know, pickup trucks that are fully electrified, who would have thought that 10 years ago? So it's going to be an exciting future for us all. 
So what can you tell us about your company, Hitachi Astemo? I can tell you, you know, one of, we've merged four major companies together uh, two years ago. We were Hitachi Automotive, now we're Hitachi Astemo. And really our, our, our focus is about sustainability, the future, the safety. And, and so we want to be a leader in the industry. We are a leader in the industry. We want to maintain that leadership and grow in, in the electrification field. So we've got a very good footprint and we're going to expand that footprint and, and improve efficiencies in the motors and the technologies that are going to enable all the battery electric vehicles in the world. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much. Our guest today has been Jim Castellano, the Vice President of Design Engineering, XEV at Hitachi Astemo. For all of those in our audience who are in the Southeast Michigan area, uh, Jim will be at the Powering Electric Vehicles event at Lawrence Tech University on Wednesday, May 24th. That's starting at 8.30 a.m. There'll be some great networking opportunities and a panel discussion, which will include Jim. So we hope you can make it and looking forward to seeing you there. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. We will be right back. I'm ready. Michigan leads in technology-driven innovation. See how at mytechnews.com, mitechnews.com. The Department of Agriculture announced what it says is the largest investment in rural electrification since the New Deal. 11 billion in new grants and loans are designed to expand renewable energy installations as well as clean energy technologies in rural areas. The announcement is part of the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act, the climate and healthcare law focused on decarbonizing the electric sector and slowing climate change. Most of the money, $9.7 billion, is earmarked for eligible rural electric cooperatives to build renewable energy installations, including wind, solar, and hydropower facilities. The dollars will also support carbon capture systems used to remove greenhouse gas emissions from places like power plants and industrial facilities. Recently, astronomers have discovered supermassive black holes, nicknamed blazars, and they are using them for what they call extreme physics experiments. Blazars are created when some of the matter surrounding a supermassive black hole doesn't fall to its surface, but is instead channeled to the black hole's poles at speeds approaching the speed of light. The resulting explosive jets of matter and radiation shoot directly at the Earth, giving scientists opportunity to do things like study theories of relativity better understand how particles behave at high energies, study the source of the cosmic rays that arrive here on Earth, and witness the evolution and formation of supermassive black holes. According to Abe Falcon, leader of the High Energy Astrophysics Group at Penn State, quote, because the jet of a blazar is pointed directly at us, we can see it from much farther away than other black hole systems, similar to how a flashlight appears brightest when you're looking directly at it. Since jet activity is directly linked to how supermassive black holes gather mass, unveiling this phenomenon 
could show how they grow to masses equivalent to millions or even billions of times that of our sun. On April 15, 1912, British luxury passenger liner RMS Titanic sank on its maiden voyage en route to New York from Southampton, England. Considered unsinkable due to its double-bottomed hull that was divided into 16 watertight compartments, the ship collided with an iceberg southeast of Cape Race, Newfoundland, and sank. 1,500 of its 2,200 passengers died. The fate of the ship and its passengers has fascinated people for a century. This week, the first full-size 3D digital scan of the complete wreckage was made public. This digital twin captures a Titanic in great detail sitting on the floor of the Atlantic Ocean. The ship broke apart as it sank, and the bow and stern sections today are about one-third of a mile apart, with a debris field spanning a five-by-three-mile area, including furniture fragments, dinnerware, shoes, boots, and other personal items. Previous exploration of the sites made use of low-resolution cameras. The newly unveiled digital twin, however, shows every rivet of the Titanic. They can even read the serial number on the propeller. This amount of detail will allow researchers to determine what really happened to cause the disaster. Read these stories and more at globalautomobility.com and subscribe to Smart Mobility today on your favorite podcast platform. Sign up to receive our weekly newsletter and follow us on social media at Smart Mobility Today. Produced by Detroit Media Productions, this is Smart Mobility Today. Today.